Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. January 1st, 2024 marks the 45th anniversary of the normalization of diplomatic ties between China and the U.S. After decades of ups and downs, the world's most important bilateral relationship is at a new point. Well, the world applauded the November meeting in San Francisco between President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden as a positive step to normalizing relations. The question remains on how the two sides can maintain the momentum and can the San Francisco vision become a reality? How can we describe the current China-U.S. relationship? Is it a time to restructure bilateral ties and what would that mean to the world? Join our discussion today from Beijing. I'm Xu Qinduo. Joining me today are Professor Huang Jing, Director of Institute of the U.S. and Pacific Studies, Shanghai International Studies University, Dawei, Director of Center for International Strategy and Security, Tsinghua University, and Professor Peter Kuznick from American University. Welcome to Dialogue. So, Dawei, I will start with you. You know, well, we are marking the 45 years of the China-U.S. official ties. Uh, if you were asked to summarize the evolution of the relations over the past decades uh, in one sentence, you know, with a few keywords, what would it be? I will say the China-U.S. relations has been the most important bilateral relationship with the global global impact. So, in history, for example, when we set up our diplomatic relations uh, 45 years ago, both China and the U.S. worked together, and we. Uh, actually shaped the Cold War international uh, order. I think that we had a very strong, these bilateral relations had a very strong global impact. Then later in 1990s, the two countries jointly pushed and uh, accelerated the glo economic globalization, which changed the, the whole world, and including China and the U.S., particularly uh, economically. And now the bilateral relations uh, are in a quite difficult shape, of course. So the whole world, I think, is watching these bilateral relations. So again, maybe negatively, but again, this bilateral relationship have a global impact. <laughs> and this is the most important bilateral relations in the world, I will say. Peter, do you agree the most important relationship uh, yet, you know, despite the ups and downs? I, I certainly would agree with that. I think our two nations together are going to largely determine the future direction of history for good or bad. And it's interesting that despite our differences in systems, in philosophies, in history, uh, we've managed to carve out a peaceful relation and very close economic ties from 1979, I'd say till 2011. But after 2011, when the United States began its Asia pivot, we've become much more competitors and even adversaries. And I agree that, that the, the years ahead uh, potentially could go in the direction of collaboration again as a win-win kind of approach or the road we're taking, which looks like we have to really make an effort to avoid military confrontations as our interests clash increasingly in the uh, Asia-Pacific. 
Point being, of course, you know, probably what is more important is now and the future. I mean, how do you characterize the current status uh, of the relationship between Beijing and Washington? Are we at the lowest point uh, in our history? It's a very good question. I think the United States and China started in 1979 as what I called a, a kind of convenient partnership. Because at that time, both countries or both nations see Soviet Union as a number one a problem or enemy. And now is a, the relationship still the most important bilateral relationship. I agree with Professor Dawei, but this relationship can be described as, in my words, unwilling but fierce competition. Unwilling is on China part. China still want to work out a kind of collaborative relationship with the United States. China try and state very clearly again and again that China does not want this kind of competition or not to mention confrontation. The United States, of course, sees China as the most consequential challenger or competitor uh, it has ever met. In that regard, I think the United States and China get into kind of relationship, in my view. It's uh, very complicated. But in the end, I think the, the, the kind of so-called competition between the United States and China is a facade. Uh, beneath it is a kind of race between two largest powers on Earth on how to handle the internal problems well. You know, whoever can handle its internal problems better will gain the initiative since bilateral relationship. After all, the most formidable challenges for both Washington and Beijing comes from within, not from the other side. Uh, this is a relation that is really, really unprecedented. It needs to be carefully managed uh, because the internal politics never before has we, we have we facing such a problem that internal politics were in a large part determine the bilateral relationship and the future of the world at large. Uh, so Huang Jin, you talked about is the internal factors, uh, you know, that will determine probably, you know, what kind of relationship we are going to have or which side will win out. Is that a still competition between the two sides? Yes, it's a competition in the way that from the United States, of, of course, Blinken has said, uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, says that the uh, United States has to, you know, talk with China or deal with China from the position of strength. My understanding is this is kind of, you know, uh, regarding the United States does not want to deal with China or as any other powers from the position of weakness. And they also said as in the China policies, the focus is to invest in the United States itself. But on the China side, you know, Chairman Xi Jinping also repeatedly said, has to do our own sense well. I think that's a foundation, also condition, not only foundation, but also condition for the two largest powers can get along with each other to get into this competition. Because if either if either side has an internal turmoil or internal problem, it will be disaster, not only for the bilateral relationship, but for the entire world. So ironically, I think each country's, I think for the rationality's point of view, each country wants to see the other side to be stable, and the developing and prosperous because you know a chaotic United States is bad for bilateral relationship like like I said but also for the whole world and vice versa. Uh, Dawei, do you agree? So the two countries relationship are so close now we're at a point that uh, you know we have to ensure like a uh, stability at least uh, internally on both sides. Of course uh, this is uh, the as I said the most important relationship, we cannot just, uh, you know, wait and see, to, you know, just let it 
to go through this free fall process. I think that's too dangerous. Uh, but I, I think the reason that we have a very difficult situation, I think the reason is directly related to the domestic uh, development in the two in respective countries. So we have to reach some consensus and I mean domestically regarding, for example, the the path uh, the the model of the development in, e in each country, uh, and can we uh, uh, does those paths those models can coexist. I mean, if because each side will make their own decision, you know, which way, which model you will, which which uh, path you will take for your own development, if those two paths can can converge, at, or at least coexist, then we will have a stable bilateral relations. But if not, if it's divergent, or if it's, you know, uh, cannot, we cannot, co the two models, two paths cannot coexist, then we won't have a stable uh, relationship. So I, I think the most important root cause of this, no matter instability or stability, is the domestic development in of the two countries. Or can we say there are, there are pursuit of policies? For example, the U.S. Ambassador Nick Burns, you know, speaking to Brookings Institute recently, uh, said that, uh, you know, the two countries are uh, say systematic rivals and are vying for global power as well as regional power. That sounds a lot uh, like you know zero sum instead of uh, say coexistence or win win. Yeah. yeah, this is I think a typical American perspective. Uh, tend to view these bilateral relations from you know uh, so-called strategic competition, but I I personally don't think this is how China view these bilateral relations. I think the the primary goal of China is develop itself. Itself, China is still a developed country. I, I just read a statistic today that more than almost 900 million people in China still have a monthly income lower than 2,000 RMB. So that's about 300 US dollars every month. So I think China is still is is facing a very very uh, challenging task to develop itself to make itself more well-off society, and also to try to uh, get rid of this so-called uh, middle-income trap. I think this is the the primary goal of China. But of course, if China becomes, let's say, if our GDP per capita, you know, doubled, let's say, in next ten years, of course, China will be a much powerful, much more powerful country. Uh, so uh, I think the U.S. looking at China from outside China, you you always, you know, emphasize, the, I mean, the U.S. had always emphasize this overall power of China. But if you look at China from internal perspective, so it's it's about development. It's about how to satisfy the people's demand for a better life. I think this is, uh, you know, difference from the difference uh, between the two countries regarding China's intention. And maybe it's also true, how do we view the U.S.? I mean, how China, how does China view the U.S. and how does Americans view the U.S.? I think we have these different angles, uh, different perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Peter, obviously perception matters. Uh, you know, it seems like, uh, at least on the official level, the two countries view each other from different, uh, you know, perspective. Uh, uh, but then, you know, at the end of the day, do you think Washington will accept, uh, you know, a China which, uh, for example, in 10 years' time, okay, GDP doubled, for example, that's larger than the U.S. Is that acceptable for Washington? It's acceptable 
the United States has had to watch this happen. China has grown economically at the fastest rate of any country in history. Um, China's rise has been remarkable, and the Americans have been challenged by it. The United States, after the end of the Cold War, was a hegemonic power. It had no rivals. American theorists talked about the unipolar moment and the unipolar era. And then China's rise undermined that whole vision. And China became a competitor. And China became the second biggest economy in the world. Then China began building up its military as well. And it has the greatest number of ships in its navy of any country in the world. And it began to compete with the United States for influence in the Asia Pacific. And, and now China is building up its nuclear arsenal. So China has become a very proud country with a proud history and traditions that wants its right, what it considers its rightful place in the world. But the United States is not really ready for a multipolar world yet. There are many Americans who, of course, are. But the American view of China is still overall negative. 82% of Americans have a negative view of China, which is much more than it was even a decade ago. And so, uh, and then in terms of American domestic politics, Biden running as an 82 year old wants to look strong. And to look strong, you have to show you're gonna stand up to the Chinese. We saw with the balloon incident, the American response to that. Uh, and, and relations had deteriorated so badly that the United States realized we're on a path to war, not on a path to peaceful competition. And so Anthony Blinken went over there and Janet Yellen went to Beijing and Raimondo went to Beijing. Uh, and then we had the meeting in San Francisco on, in November. And so we're trying to steer off that kind of path of confrontation that could lead to military confrontation, which no reasonable person wants to see. So we have to, as we're saying, you know, handle our relations sensitively and thoughtfully to see who can do a better job in competing for the world, or, you know, who can produce more and have a better, uh, contribute more to global development and to, and to reducing global warming. You know, the kind of things that the United States and China are uniquely positioned to do. And uh, hopefully that'll be the direction we go. Mm -hmm. Well, speak of the San Francisco summit meeting, uh, we are seeing already the implementation of some of those proposals. For example, the resumption of military contacts and also the cooperation of the two sides on the control of narcotics. So, Huang Jin, uh, do you expect the solid and faithful implementation of all those proposals? Of course, the summit in San Francisco demonstrated very clearly that both leadership, both Washington and Beijing, want to keep the relationship at least manageable. For the United States, the presidential campaign is coming. And of course, as the incumbent president, Joe Biden, of course, want this relationship to be stable or at least manageable. Uh, so that you will not face too much troubles by this important bilateral relationship, however you define it. But for the Chinese, of course, China also needs a stabilized, need to stabilize a bilateral relationship so that to help to create a peaceful environment or, or a, a kind of environment China needs 
to sustain economic development. Having said that, I think that overall conditions or overall situation for the bilateral relationship remains unchanged. That is, United States still see China as the most consequential competitor or challenger, and China still sees itself as a rising power that has to, you know, need a larger space, uh, either materially or spiritually. In that regard, it seems that, just like Peter just said, this conflict of interest is inevitable. It's very difficult to manage. But I want to add here that United States seems to be very confused or kind of, uh, you know, tangled into this irony or dilemma. That is, on the one hand, the uh, United States wants to play a zero-sum game against China, like Professor Dawi said. China's getting stronger means United States getting weakened and vice versa. So therefore, try everything possible to stop or contain China. But on the other hand, this kind of interdependence, economically speaking, makes the game a positive-sum game. So just like United States, the left hand wants to play the zero-sum game, but right hand has to play a positive game. Positive game by nature is all about compromise, it's all about cooperation. So it's not like Soviet Union, you know, economically, politically, and ideologically, it's all kind of black and white against United States. But now United States, China live in the same world. Both powers are deeply integrated with this world. So they will have to play a positive sum game with each other. But the problem, again, like I said, a bunch of uh, politicians, uh, whoever you call them, uh, want to play a zero-sum game, which is, I don't think it's realistic at all. That's where the problem is. That's why the United States and China's bilateral relationship between two countries, to a large extent, actually is undermined by the political uncertainty in the United States. This political uncertainty, like I always argue, is not only undermine Americans' own interests, but it's also become one of the most formidable obstacles or hurdles for the management of this bilateral relationship, which is not in good shape right now. Well, Darwin, you were nodding your head. Uh, so, can, you know, we say, you know, that uh, this is the new start. This is the start of a new stage, let's say, in bilateral relationship with the summit, you know, successfully being held in San Francisco. But at the same time, you do see uh, Washington is not changing its China policy. But then what can we do, you know, basically to pursue a peaceful coexistence? Uh, I think first I want to echo uh, what uh, Professor Huang said. I think this bilateral, the, the basic structure is still there this bilateral relations. So that decides, that, that means we won't have a dramatic improvement of these bilateral relations. Uh, but my expectation is that uh, maybe we can stabilize these bilateral relations and then I call it an L-shaped development. So in past uh, five or six years, it's a free fall, but now we can have a, a stabilized bilateral relations. It's not a V-shape or U-shape, it's an L-shape. So we can we can try to stabilize that. I think that's possible, but I will, I, will not, I will not say it will happen automatically. But we still need to very, work very hard to stabilize it. I think what we need to do is uh, first we need to continue the current momentum, the positive momentum made by the two presidents in, in San Francisco. Uh, we have those working groups. We have that dialogue mechanism. We need to make it you know, happen with, uh, in next year. And also we need to uh, manage several very sensitive issues carefully. For example, 
the South China Sea uh, issue, I think we need to be really careful. Uh, and uh, uh, China and the Philippines uh, having some you know, potential conflicts over the second Thomas show and other, other features. And another thing is, of course, Taiwan's uh, the, the election in Taiwan. I think that could also raise the tension between uh, all the parties related to that issue. I won't say we have a very, very pessimistic year. Uh, it could be stable, uh, but we need to work hard. Mm-hmm. We need to work hard. Uh, uh, on that regard, uh, Peter, we do see, you know, if you look at the bilateral trade relationship, for example, uh, in 1979, you know, it, the, the total trade was like 2.5 billion U.S. dollars. In 2022, uh, it was almost 700 billion. Uh, that's a dramatic growth. There's a lot of relationship, obviously, you know, keeping the two sides together. And also uh, in San Francisco, the Chinese side promised like, uh, to invite you know, 50,000 young Americans to visit China, to come to China. So obviously we are making efforts and there are, there are I mean, more than enough reasons to keep us together, uh, to stable this, stabilize this, this relationship. So how do you see this uh, upcoming years, <laughs> of course, including the 2024 election year? I think it's challenging. We get on January 13th, we've got a very important election taking place in Taiwan. And there are people in the United States who are going to say that they will encourage Taiwan to press for independence, which we know is would be a trigger for China to try to resolve the situation militarily. So that's that's really fraught. That's a very, very dangerous situation. As my colleagues are saying, the South China Sea is also very, very dangerous. And the U.S. has an election coming up. It looks like, even though nobody wants it this way, it's going to be Biden versus Trump. You know, Biden is the lesser of two evils when it comes to China. Trump was even worse. And the people (laughs) Trump surrounded himself with are super hawks. uh, And they wanted a trade war. And they wanted military uh, confrontation in many cases. And the Biden people, you know, Biden's got 18 top advisors from the Center for New American Security. These are China hawks. Uh, and, and so, but that would be better in terms of the possibility of peace. Biden has tried to walk a fine line between confrontation and showing how tough he is and wanting peaceful relations. But uh, he's getting attacked from the right within his own party and within the Republican Party. At the same time, the U.S. is trying to deal with crisis in Gaza and crisis in Ukraine uh, and uh, building up America's military budget, $886 billion uh, officially and actually much more than that. And so it's going to be a challenge. It's not going to be easy this year to improve relations, especially given the U.S. election in, in uh, November. Uh, well, obviously, this uh, relationship requires a lot of caution on both sides, uh, and even uh, especially at the time of uh, this election year. So, Huang Jing, you know, if um, you look at the world uh, or how the rest of the world views the China-U.S. relationship, uh, you know, th- there's a, a survey uh, by the Global Times Institute. They talked to the respondents from about 20 countries, and uh, you know, over one third expect China-U.S. to maintain the status quo in the coming year, while nearly one-third hope for it to be eased. Less than 20% choose conflict as a possible outcome. 
So what do these figures suggest for you? I think on the one hand, we see that the majority want a kind of a sta stable relationship or status quo. Uh, of course, if it's not good, please do not get it worse. Just keep it this way. And to stabilize it, uh, do not get any worse. But we also have a minority who want, like you said, a conflict. This is kind of very ironic. I just said, in the United States, just like my colleague Peter just said, there's some very hawkish people who really want nothing but war against China, who see China as the number one and the first or most enemy. Uh, I think maybe the most important job, ironically, for both Washington and Beijing is to make sure that those hawkish view or hawkish element in their own country will not split over and will not become the driving force in policy making. If that becomes the case, should that become the case, then we're all in a very bad shape. So Peter, briefly, what the best scenario do you see for the next couple of years? I see this being a very difficult year, but the United States is over-involved already in both Ukraine and the Middle East, and it doesn't want and doesn't need uh, tensions to ratchet up with China. And the Biden administration is going to try to tamp it down. But when we, it was not just Trump, it's that entire party, which has become a party of Trump. But if you listen to the debates that are going on, they're all China hawks. The one thing that the Democrats and Republicans can agree on is that they are all opposed to China right now. And so the Republicans more than the Democrats, but it's, it's not a good situation in terms of those of us who want to see us work together to deal with global warming, to deal with pandemics, to deal with issues of war and peace. So my, I'm not optimistic, but I'm not totally pessimistic because, you know, we've managed to goes up and down and gets more tense. Uh, and now we're trying to walk it back again to have a more stable and peaceful competition, uh, which is about the best I can hope for. Maybe after the election, cooler heads will prevail and we can start figuring out a way to work together as the two leaders in the world who need to be uh, showing a, another direction rather than polarization and blocks and a new Cold War, which is the direction that we've been heading and now step back a little bit at least. Well, on that, we are coming to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qingduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 